Hi, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning Podcast channel with me, Dr. Samantha Cotrera. On this podcast channel, you'll find a collection of my conference presentations from 2016 onward. To learn more information about this work, as well as all my work, visit my website at www.samanthacotrera.com. This paper is called Post-Structural Interruptions, Using Women's Stories to Challenge National Narratives in High School History Classrooms. I presented this paper at the Women and Gender Studies Association Conference at the University of Calgary in Calgary, Alberta in May 2016. My work related to critical theory in education and history actually began from my undergrad degree where I did an interdisciplinary women's studies degree at U of T. In 2016, I was beginning to rework my doctoral work to become a manuscript, a manuscript that will actually be out in August of 2020, published by uh, UBC Press. That's called Transforming the Canadian History Classroom, Imagining a New We. In 2016, I was starting to think about these ideas again, and so presenting this at the Women and Gender Studies Association was kind of a coming back to be able to think about post-structural theory, feminist theory, um, historic space, and ways to intervene in standard teaching and learning practice to bring in stories of women and to bring in stories related to gender. It was really great presenting this um, information to a women's studies crowd again, and I hope you enjoy. Focusing on mainstream Canadian history education um, and how feminist theory, in, in particular post-structural feminist theory, can be used as a framework for deconstructing important ideas about gender, race, class, uh, ableism, sexuality, in ways that are acceptable according to the current curriculum that's out there. So while I talk a lot about post-structuralism, I'm very much a structuralist, and I recognize the importance of being able to work within the system as much as possible so that teachers, especially teachers that um, might not uh, have a lot of seniority in the classroom, um, are able to do some really radical deconstructive work, but within these confines that actually look quite mainstream. So, this project that I'm focusing on today, I've been working on for about 15 years, actually. So the, it's, it's a blend of theory, uh, and then some examples, and then talking about the implications. When I first envisioned this as a, as a paper to discuss with women's studies, I really wanted to focus on the examples and the implications. Um, and I, uh, because I, I felt like that would some, bring some really great um, conversation the discussion period to the fore about other ways to do this. But I realized when I was placed in a, a, a session about the future of women's studies and feminist pedagogy that spending more time on the theory might actually be helpful, especially if one is to teach a course in a different discipline but still wants to blend uh, feminist theory into it. So in this paper, I'm going to... Oh, so many buttons to press. I'm going to, I'm going to talk about the theory applied to practice. Uh, and then I'm going to spend less time about the classroom examples and the implications, but I'm happy to discuss it um, in question period. This work is also a, a chapter of my upcoming uh, manuscript for UBC Press on creating possibilities, um, uh, meaningful learning in Canadian history education. So this paper is called Post-Structural Interruptions, Using Women's Stories to Challenge National Narratives in Secondary Class Communities. So in particular, I'll be talking about um, 
high school history. Uh, I'll be talking about Canadian history, but also a West End world class um, uh, in, in using my examples. So hopefully, even if this isn't something that you normally think about, it'll still have resonance to your experience as either a learner uh, or as an educator. So in order to imagine new equitable possibilities for being and creating communities of belonging, the stories we tell about the past, present, and future of Canada must interrupt dominant narratives that encode and decode certain experiences as relevant, logical, and important. That's what we often do in women and gender studies. I argue that in the classroom communities of elementary and secondary schools, we should be and can be doing this as well if we collaboratively and equitably deconstruct national narratives of belonging and being using feminist post-structural deconstruction. If this is invited and welcome to the classroom as a set of theoretical tools that break open dominant narratives, these, it will allow experiences to emerge that model critical cognitive and social justice for individuals, communities, and nations. You know, just as one does. Uh, despite living our lives at the intersection of many narratives, post-structural theory is not widely accepted in history education practice. In fact, it's often the opposite. Right now, there's a huge emphasis in history education on what I label, not other people, neoliberal skills-based modeling. So skills-based is very prominent, but I think it replicates a neoliberal approach to history that, that moves us away from an affective deconstruction understanding of history that is needed for history education to be something that is equitable and socially just for all students. By incorporating these theories into history education classrooms, educators and community leaders can invite and model an interruption of national narratives where teachers and learners collaborate, witness the presence of many different historical experiences, especially women's, as more than just ancillary to the real story. So in today's paper, I'll explore this theoretical model for incorporating post-structural deconstruction into history education and demonstrate how, during in-situ classroom research, we were able to use this model to bring in women's stories, intersectional women's stories, into the classroom that challenged, not just complemented, the dominant ways of understanding the past. So while these were not feminist classrooms, by doing post-structural feminist work in a mainstream setting, we were, able to we were able to teach and learn as if these experiences were central to one's understanding of the past, not to the side of one's understanding of the past. This has resonance then on one's understanding of the past, the present, and of course the future. And then this also has an influence on how students un understand themselves and situate themselves within a larger historical narrative. So as I mentioned, I'll be talking about the theory, I'll move to classroom practice, and a little bit of the implications. So in the early 2000s, um, so for 15 years, I've developed a conceptual framework for history called historic space. This was based on my experience as a living history museum, so like a pioneer museum, uh, while also doing transnational feminist theory in my undergrad program. And while I could see ways to incorporate these ideas I was learning about in class into my practice um, as a, as a you know, full-dress pioneer, um, uh, full-dress, um, uh, what I was also seeing was how strongly people's uh, simplistic understandings of history dominated how they entered in that space. 
So if I didn't first acknowledge their simplistic understanding of history, I wasn't able to go beyond that to, under, to get them to understand more critical understandings about history. So in some way, so, so oftentimes I first had to acknowledge the things that they had wrong in order to then say why that was wrong versus just saying, no, 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 I'm moving on, but to say, oh, yeah, that's, that's often what people think. So that was really important for me, to see the importance of acknowledging that simplicity in order to get to that complexity. So historic space is a conception of history that blends both the simplicity and complexity together to peel away misconceptions and stereotypes bound into history and build a more contextual, inclusive understanding of the Canadian past. Historic space is a framework for reorganizing historical content so that the simplistic way history is taught, presented, and learnt in schools is the starting place for deconstructing historical narratives and the starting place for rebuilding new ways of understanding the past. Historic space as a content organizer uses the importance of students' prior knowledge, which can be wrong, uh, the power of their learning connections, so what they find meaningful, and the complexity needed to fully understand the past as the starting place for engaging Canadian history rather than the ending place. So rather than say, well, we'll get to the complex stuff after we get all the facts in, we say that our, our goal is to do the complex work, and that's how we're starting. Historic space is grounded in post-structural theory and interpreted through concept learning, which is a blend of various different types of theory, but all at their base have feminist, feminist roots. Hilda Talbot is a pioneer in concept learning, but often she's overlooked for Jerome Bruner. Um, but you all don't know necessarily the history of educational theory, but this is actually based in, uh, in a woman's work who was trying to, to change the way knowledge was uh, established in class. But often she, uh, her work is less acknowledged and her, her contributions to the field of concept learning and learning theory is overtaken by uh, various of her colleagues who happened to have been men in the 1960s. <laughs> So, what, so I argue that if educators cease to think of the grand narrative as a collection of facts and start to think of history as a collection of concepts that we create, because history is just a fantasy echo of what came before, which is quoting Joan Scott, then teaching and learning history can invite a dialogue that deconstructs and interrupts the unacknowledged myths of national hegemonic history. So this isn't necessarily in a fourth year seminar class. This is for 15 year olds sitting in high school history that a lot of times are learning these ideas to begin with. And they might not know a lot, but they know that they are excluded for the most part. So many researchers have found that students and the general population understand history as a collection of names and dates devoid of concepts. Even with curricular changes that are meant to focus on primary source analysis and skills rather than content, national history is often taught as a simplified chronology with these names and dates used to highlight specific nation-building moments. So to be successful in most national history courses, students are expected to repeat back names and dates and ideas that constitute the textbook version of national history. Although both teachers and students profess to hate this, Teachers often hold on to it because it is easier and less professionally contentious to open up the classroom for exploration and discovery. 
So with that in mind, historic space is important because first it says we know that this is what you need to teach. We know that this is what you're comfortable to learn. We're going to start here and then move on. Instead, if we think of interrupting that dominant narrative to acknowledge the simplicity of it, to acknowledge the limitations of it, then we can move forward. So an interruption of the national narrative um, opens up the space to see the absence of other as clearly as the inclusion of the elites. And that's really important because it allows the fixed structure of the narrative to be questioned as absolute and logic to the timeline to be interrogated as logical. Doreen Massey, a feminist geographer, says that the social relations um, or that space or social relations spread out. So putting this idea in history takes an idea off a timeline and puts it in a space in which those social relations are able to be viewed in a different way than just this person was important at this moment. Historic space is a way to understand history so that the social relations bound up in the representation of the past are able to be deconstructed and understood as sites of power. With these understandings, students can reconstruct historical narratives in ways that allow them to imagine more sustainable, equitable, and democratic ways of understanding the past. Historic space, then, is the re-articulation re of a textbook version of history as concepts in space rather than facts in a timeline or on a timeline. These spaces, these malleable, open, exploratory spaces, are then deconstructed to allow play with the narrative. And play, I'm drawing on Derrida as well, when learning about the past. This textbook version often represents the past as a timeline, a static, linear timeline, where significant people and events are democratically ordered, and less significant people and events are left off completely. But with the structure of the timeline as the entry point of learning, there is no room for students to play and understand the past as anything more than can what be assessed uh, and evaluated for knowing. So while more people and events can be added to the narrative, their additions often serve the logic of the narrative rather than deconstructed itself. So for example, Adding Nellie McClung or the, uh, and the person's case to a timeline may include more information about feminist gains in the 20th century, but in doing so, it also fails to explore the complexities of her ideas, often which were very racist and imposed for sterilization, uh, sterilization on many women in Alberta, for example, and fails to imagine the relationship between her fight for legislation and the fight for other legislation at the time, such as the uh, Chinese Immigration Act of 1923, which ended the Chinese head tax, but still barred any further immigration into Canada. So these two pieces of history may seem uh, disconnected, or at least connected just by chronology, but understanding them together, allowing them to play together, um, allows us to understand a greater, uh, the greater ways in which Canada was mobilizing ideas of gender, race, class, and ethnicity during this time period. How am I doing on time? Yes, Excellent. The concept of space can invite these interactions because the metaphor of space allows malleability to the interruption of the past that a timeline cannot. A historic space encapsulates and acknowledges the people, events, and ideas that the timeline holds, deal, hold, holds dear, but also provides the space for that which is unknown. 
Unlike the rigidity of the timeline, the idea of historic space allows various routes to move landmarks and guides around, to interact with each other, and highlight that different stories can be told when we refuse to believe that the narrative is right, objective, or true. Which, which happens, which falls into a trap when you're talking about chronology. Learning history with historic space, students are gaining the historical literacy for understanding the hegemonic power and national narrative that are so intertwined, but we don't often separate. A timeline can only go one way. It can only go forward, marching towards contemporary progress as if that's the way it was always supposed to be. But space reroutes history in order for hidden narratives that are in the shadows of larger stories to be able to come out and interact with students, um, uh, students present in their contemporary lives. So while these ideas may seem really complicated because uh, you know a lot of times people are encountering these ideas for the first time in women's studies classes in undergrad, there's often pushback that these ideas are too complicated for students to really play with. However, at the very least, Historic space invites students to question why are these particular stories important for understanding the past, according to who, and according, for, and according to uh, what criteria. Who and what are included in these stories? What roles do they play? Who's left out? What role do they play? Why? What is common amongst the histories that are absence, absent? And what are common amongst the histories that are included? So this is feminist post-deconstruction in action, and these are not complicated questions for 15-year-olds to answer. They're not complicated questions for 8-year-olds to answer. But allowing these questions into the classroom is part of a learning process that holds the strength for bringing feminist deconstruction into a mainstream classroom. So another way to think of historic space, before I move on to my example in the last four minutes, is to think of historic space as uh, uh, like magnets, like magnetic poetry that you put on a fridge. So if you read a book, all those words go in a particular order. There's a particular logic to it. But here you have all those words. You, sometimes you even have grammar and punctuation. And so you learn that, but then you also learn to remake it and remodel it according to the ways that make sense for you in that moment. So the steps for application. So again, according to Hilda Taba, concept learning, if you'd like to know more about that, I'd be happy to share that uh, information. It's map, expand, and challenge. So by mapping, we take, we take that textbook, we spend one class pulling out all the names and dates that seemingly are important, to this, this historical time period. Then we spend two or three classes focusing just on a couple of those, but the majority of the class is challenging. It's taking stories that are marginalized or not in the textbook at all and, and interweaving them with this textbook narrative that we have fleshed out and in only spending a day on it have uh, prioritized is not as important as the complexity that we want to, to bring up. So I worked in two different classrooms. I actually worked in three, but I only, I only want to, uh, I'm only bringing up two right now. One is a 20th century Canadian history class. The other one was a West and World class, which is like three centuries ending in the 19th century. The historic space that we focused on in the 20th century class was post-World War II Canada. In the Western world, we focused on the French Revolution. 
And what we did with these challenges was that we brought in documents and examples from women in history that demonstrated both how they aligned with certain things in the narrative. So, for example, Theron de Mary Pope, she was an activist during the French Revolution, but she was also called crazy and imprisoned. And then we explored that story. Why was a woman called crazy? What is that longer discourse of women being called crazy when they're doing similar, uh, similar work as men and or pushing against the patriarchy? So we were able to learn more about the French Revolution through looking at her story. And it wasn't just to say, all right, we're going to look at some women now, but rather to say, this is one woman whose experiences we're going to understand this time period in a more contextualized way. The same thing with the West Indian domestic scheme. So in the 1960s, Canada brought in um, West Indian domestic workers who were all uh, single educated women from the West Indies, the Caribbean, to uh, work as domestic, uh, domestic laborers in homes in, in Canada. So when we talk about World War II and we talk about immigration, we often talk about war brides or we talk about other sorts of um, uh, white-collar domestic labor. We often talk about uh, men. In this case, we were, and, and we also talk about the cult of domesticity during this time. So here, by using this example, we were able to talk about how certain women's bodies and certain women's labor was imported in order to ratify the domesticity that was being promoted through various advertisements and, uh, and through a, like a, a, political, uh, a political umbrella, really. 1950s white women, some 1950s white women are able to stay at home and buy their, their refrigerators and X, Y, and Z because very educated women from the West Indies were being uh, brought over to Canada in order to do domestic labor at home. So we brought in these stories not just to bring in black history and not just to bring in women's history, but to bring in this history to challenge the narrative from an intersectional point of view that was only available when we're using these tools of feminist post-structural deconstruction. And what emerged was that there was this desire for this, these conversations. Um, my, larger work, uh, my, my larger work focuses mainly on race because that's often the conversation that the students want to have more. But in the last 20 years, the presence of women in the curriculum, in the history curriculum, has really abated. There is no longer, women are used as an example of people to, to focus on, but there are no longer curriculum objectives that focus on women's experiences. But I had a student that said, I really want to know more about women in the French Revolution. So I was really glad that, what's her name? Yeah, I was glad that she was in that. What's important about this comment is that this student had ample opportunity to say to both myself and her teacher, because it was a very comfortable space for, for her and the dynamics of the classroom, to say, I want to talk about women. But she didn't. Coming up after it was really important for us to hear how important these women's narratives are to a lot of female students. But also when we talk about something like the West Indian domestic scheme, I had students in surveys, and they were anonymous surveys, so I don't know if they were male students or uh, female students, that say things like, when we focused on the West Indy, it kind of related to me, and that was important. Because students are saying when we go and we talk about these particular issues, when we are doing this, this drag and drop method which doesn't work anymore, um, when we talk about black history, we often talk about black successful men. 
So why aren't we talking more about women as well as this kind of um, this intersectional understanding of, of why these ideas are important? So that was my project. I'd be happy to talk more about it. Um, uh, you can find more information on my website. And uh, you can also follow up on my Gmail. I don't have any more cards yet, but thank you very much. Thank you.